Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome legal professional and author Justin M. Jacobson. He's going to share his background inside and outside of the esports industry from a legal perspective. And he's going to tell us all about the process of going into writing his book. Let's talk to Justin. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, Justin M. Jacobson, welcome to the DLC Drop Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So I think, well, you're not our first author, but you are our first esports author on the podcast. And so I'm excited to dig into your background, the the background outside of esports, within esports, and the process of you writing this book as well. So to get started, you are an esports and entertainment attorney. Tell us how you got started in this field. Yeah, so you know, as you mentioned, for the last decade, I've been esports entertainment attorney, working with professional gamers and musicians and athletes and producers and fashion designers, all kinds of creative people handling all their legal and business matters. And, you know, I kind of started in the more traditional entertainment and music and sports world and really in the last five years kind of expanded into esports and gaming, working with different talent agencies, different teams, different players, and just really kind of getting used to doing all the deals and what was kind of associated from there. Currently, you know, as you mentioned, I wrote a book, The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming. And actually this semester I taught the class at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where we actually, you know, used the book. So that was really exciting. And cool. Also last year I was brought in by Ford Models, which is those who are unfamiliar, it's a traditional high-end talent agency. And they brought me in to create an esports and gaming talent division under their, you know, digital influencer platform. And in that role, I handle the day-to-day management and development of over 20 different gaming towns, including pro gamers, streamers, coaches, casters, and some other personalities. So really kind of an evolution from starting working at you know different record labels and at MTV and managing DJs and really kind of that start of the entertainment world and then went to law school. And when I left law school, I kind of started on my own voyage working with different players, whether they're, you know, NFL players, MLB players, NBA guys. And from there started to work with fashion designers and cool painters like this one. And just a lot of really unique creative people helping them with all their, you know, legal matters. So focus on contracts and trademarks and copyrights and, you know, business and LLC formations and immigration and taxes and wills and just really everything that relates to the operation of, you know, the talent as a business. Absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned the paint, the painting behind you. So those watching the video here, tell us who, who is the artist who did that painting? That's incredible. So that's Misha T, you know, M. Dodd. He's a Ukrainian artist that I've, you know, based here in New York City that does a really a lot of c- cool stuff. MishaT.com. So, you know, check it out. Nice. Love the shout out. So I think one thing that's awesome about the legal profession is it's, as far as I see it, it's a direct application to esports and it's so needed in esports. A lot of times you have these, uh, I call them complementary experts. They're people from outside the space who have business experience or, or other things that aren't endemic necessarily to esports, but they're needed as we grow our industry. A lot of times those 
disciplines need to be adapted or you have to have a really nuanced understanding of what applies and what doesn't. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so you can correct me uh, from my amateur perspective, but does legal, does what you did in you know traditional sports directly apply, copy and paste into esports? Well, you know, I think that what's really nice about it and what I noticed early on is, especially working from the talent side in esports and gaming, is there's a lot of similarities in the legal matters and kind of even the way you approach development. The same way you might protect a gamer tag with a trademark, you would do an artist or a DJ name or a clothing brand the same way you would do an esports team. So I just thought there was a lot of similarities in just the legal needs, you know, copywriting logos, images, photographs, all of these kind of assets that whether you're a musician or a streamer it's just changes you know it's really this this medium is the same and then a lot of the agreements especially on the sponsorship and appearance side is a lot of name and likeness so whether it's using the name ninja or using the name madonna it's these you still have the same kind of things where you have to know how it's used during the term how it's used after the term what's it's like on existing merchandise and the same way you need to protect you know, the Rolling Stones name after a contract ends, you need to protect who uses Shroud name. And it's so there was a lot of similarities. And then even the structuring where in the music world, there's a lot of what are called loan out companies where, you know, Jay-Z Inc. will be made. And that's how it'll operate, you know, publishing and record deals and merchandise and everything. And similarly in esports, you see Ninja Inc. and Shroud Inc. And these kind of talents are operating in the same fashion. So... That was one thing that I really noticed. But then there obviously are, you know, unique things right. that are just kind of only esports and gaming related. Obviously, you know, streaming revenue is a new thing and, you know, in-game merchandise and items and how that's split. Like, it's not necessarily part of the traditional music industry. Now as it's evolved where you have a Travis Scott Fortnite skin or, you know, any of these other in-game assets, those that might play in, but it's only because music evolved to esports not the other way around so i actually found that there was just a lot of similarities and it made it kind of an easy transition for me yeah now those new things is yeah i know some forgive me like i said i'm not a liar no i do know what the word precedent means and so it sounds like we have some new things that don't have precedent now do you apply that from do you kind of adjust what's been relevant in the past in other industries or do you have to develop something completely new for things like skins or streaming or these these other things yeah i mean you there's kind of a new development of this you know terminology and kind of the way it operates but again a lot of it's similar but when you talk about almost the player contracts the nfl and the nba they have these standard agreements where every player signs the same agreement yeah all that really changes is the player name and how much you're paying Whereas in esports, there's nothing similar to that. You know, mm. there's individuals that are making a lot of the major teams' agreements, so a lot of it is very similar. But there's no, this is what every player that plays Overwatch, that plays League of Legends, that plays Valorant signs, unless right. you're signed to one of those teams. So it's like there are certain, I would say, industry custom that have kind of developed over time. And that was kind of the learning process of doing these player deals and working with major teams and seeing what, how different teams structured stuff, what games were different, you know? Obviously a mobile game might be a little bit different than a console or PC game, you know, the things related to it. So just kind of understanding how, you know, the whole ecosystem worked. And that was kind of what led me to kind of write the book. And I think that kind of like, perfectly transitions into that 
Yeah, that's well said. You know, I've interviewed on this podcast a streamer, a content creator. I've interviewed an agent. And so I think everybody who's familiar with the esports industry knows or inside of the industry, the, the contracts are a sensitive point, right? When you first came into the industry, what were the biggest things that you said this needs to change? I mean, the one thing that I felt, and I still feel like it is a lot today, and if you don't really have someone in your quarter, corner fighting back on your behalf, they're very, very one-sided. They're very, very team-skewed, and it makes yeah. sense because the teams are the ones that are preparing the agreement. It's you know <laughs> Their attorneys are creating the agreement, and their job is to protect them, the team. And as a player or a talent or a streamer, your job is to, you know, whether it's a manager, whether it's an agent, whether it's an attorney, whether it's, you know, anyone that's your representative or you yourself, you're supposed to negotiate on your behalf. And I think of that's course. like probably the biggest issue I've seen is that a lot of players, especially the newer ones, they're just so excited to get paid and that someone's going to pay them to play the game they've been playing all the time anyway, that they just sign whatever, or they're not yeah. willing to fight back on something that maybe they should. And I think that that's why a lot of the, the agreements that might be out there are very much skewed one way as opposed to being a little bit more towards the middle. And that's kind of where someone like me comes in is understanding, okay, well, five other teams are letting me do this and I've gotten, so let me try it. And, you know, understanding that you're not going to get away with the same agreement that you did three years ago. Right. Because people are pushing back and we understand the industry a lot better than we did now and you know it's evolved where you have these franchise leagues and you have you know multi-millionaires billionaires invested where you don't have to worry about where the paycheck is coming you know these major orgs especially at the tier one level you know they got 50 million dollars they have huge venture capitalists or you know moguls entrepreneurs tied to it where it's like the two thousand dollar salary you're getting you know right. like no team that's real was skimping you out on salary but we know historically there was a lot of issues in esports with people not getting paid this and that and you know we right. can google that and go through that but i think as it evolves it kind of goes with it where the agreements were obviously very slanted towards you know the team which makes sense because they're you know have the leverage because they're paying you to perform for them and you know it's kind of like the record label thing and that was like the other similarity where it's like as mm. you know the other record label when you're getting signed to them as an artist and as a 360 deal they get a cut of everything and that's kind of what these agreements are like we, you know most of the time they don't get a cut of streaming revenue but everything else they're usually involved in but then again some teams try to get a cut of streaming revenue Sure. You know, and I've had people reach out to me and I'm like, well, check in my book because, you know, <laughs> on that page, we talk about how it's pretty custom for a streamer to keep all their streaming income and bits and, you know, sub revenue that it's just industry custom. But, you know, yeah. then some teams are like, oh, no, we get 20 percent of it. And if you don't know that maybe you could push back on it, they're going to get 20 percent. <laughs> Yeah, I liked your point. That's a power move right there. Read my book. That's pretty good. You know, I think what we're seeing in esports, it happens in every industry, right? The uh, the people doing the work gain more leverage over time, right? At first, there's, you know, and we saw this in the industrial revolution and, you know, unions protecting workers and things of that nature. And I think you're just seeing it in a more sped up development of, you know, 
people who control leagues and control teams have all the leverage and then very quickly that's becoming more balanced and i think it's a good thing for everybody that these contracts are becoming more fair my next question for you is we've seen so much growth so much evolution over the last handful of years but what do you see is still a challenge or still needs to be worked on today in esports from a legal perspective I mean, I think the biggest thing is really just players, you know, talent themselves really understanding that what they're signing has real implications and is really mm. going to have effect on their career. Because I've seen some agreements and I'm just shocked that people sign them. And then I see 10 other players on the same team signing it. And I'm just like, did you even read this? Right. And, you know, there's been agreements for like, you know, tier two, tier three orgs, lower ones, where I've told the client, like, you can't sign this. Like, this is absurd. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, I mean, I always use an example because this just is the epitome of the scene. I spent, you know, two hours on the phone with a player going through this 30 page agreement, like, giving them all kinds of great feedback. Everything's reasonable. Like, there's no yeah. reason they wouldn't accept it. Don't hear from him from her a day. Then the next day, he's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I just signed the agreement. Like, the team said, just sign it and let's go. And I didn't want to cause a fuss. And I'm just like, not only did you waste all my time on this, but there were some real issues in it that we cleared up, but whatever, you know? And it's just kind of like a couple months later, the kid is dropped, and that's the end of his career. And it's just kind of like, man, that's you know, we could have gotten you a much better deal if you listened to us. Yeah, I, I... You know, I think in the traditional sports industry, it's a little more common that an agent is, you know, going to handle these things for for a player. And I, I could see if I was a 19-year-old and I think I'm about to have my, my opportunity, right? And I, I love these guys. I love this team. They're giving me my shot. Like, of course, they're going to take care of me. And I don't want to jeopardize it by trying to negotiate, right? And sometimes negotiation can be viewed as, oh, then they're not going to sign me. They're not going to do this deal i should just do it but that's not actually the case and it, it is so so important i'm glad you brought that up to do the due diligence to not not be intimidated and not do the same thing that we do when we update our smartphones <laughs> with the next ios of not reading all this stuff in fact i even wonder if that's part of this culture of like oh i just signed it is we agree to so many things on a daily basis from a digital perspective, right? You want to use Gmail, you want to use an Apple iPhone, etc. We don't read half of the things that we end up signing. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that's kind of the biggest issue is that like they think, you know, town in general think that if they push back on certain things, oh, they're going to pull the deal. And, you know, my answer to that is twofold. It's like they call it negotiation, not take it or leave it. If it was take right. it or leave it, then they would call it that. And then, you know, the other point is, you know, I think that if you come with reasonable requests and you're coming yeah. with something that's fair, there's no reason why a fair company or team or whoever it is wouldn't take that into consideration. Does that mean it's a deal breaker and you're going to walk away? No. But, you know, if they're offering you a thousand and you ask for 1250, is that, you know, really unreasonable? I don't think so. Maybe right. they'll be like, oh, our budget's 1000 that's all we can do. Or maybe we can get up to 1100 And guess what? You got an extra 100 times 12 That's an extra 1200 bucks. I just earned my fee. Sure. And it's one of these things where ultimately if a team is willing to pull a deal because you asked and had a – like 
that's a red I flag. I was going to say that, yeah. And that's like, that should sound to your head. Like, like, why would they be mad that I get a lawyer or get someone to look over? Like, don't they want me to understand and to be comfortable and confident? And that's always what I say. It's like, you want to start a relationship like this, especially when it's talent entertainment driven on right. a good note. Not like, oh, they just made me sign it or I just felt like I just had to because realistically, this situation is not probably going to get better and it's probably going to get worse way quick. And, yeah, you know, they people just have to realize that. And like, yeah, if they're offering a thousand, you ask for 20,000, that might be insulting and they might just pull the deal because we're in different hemispheres. Right. But if it's like, you know, they're offering 5,000, you ask for 6,500, it's not unreasonable and it's not like you're saying i need this or i'm not you know it's it's the negotiation it's like they almost give you less money maybe knowing that you're going to ask for more so that they can go up you right. know and you might not realize that and that's where you know the years of experience and understanding you know what's going on here happens you know i talk to teams all the time and they're like saying a budget and then when you get the agreement the term isn't the number we were talking about. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, then you try to push it up towards that number. And they're like, oh, well, we can do it. Or, oh, we went back and looked and blah, 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 blah. But, like, you just have to try but with a reasonable request. I think that's sure. the way to do it. And worse and worse, they say no. And it's just like if that's something that you're okay with, then you will sign. And if it's like, oh, this is make or break for me, like – you know, sometimes they have a really high buyout or, you know, it's a three-year deal and there's not a raise or it's like, yeah, that might not be a good deal for, you know, you. And you have to understand that you have to try to sign something that you're comfortable with. And I think, like you said, a 19-year-old is just doesn't want to rock the boat, but they don't realize three or five years later what they signed as a 19-year-old is probably going to have some impact on them. And if they didn't do it properly, yes. it could be a problem. Yeah, you know, it, it connects with traditional sports in the way that in The Last Dance, which, you know, I think everybody during COVID watched, a big piece of that was Scottie Pippen's contract. And that was a, a huge issue is I, I think if I remember correctly, you know, he wanted to make sure that he got his money when he had the, the chance. He didn't want to have the situation where maybe he got injured or whatever. And so he just signed this contract to get and it was the minimum and it was it was a really rough contract. I think also to to compared to another point of yours, I've been a part of a lot of different deals through my career with working with different clients and things of that nature. And boy, do I see the red flags now <laughs> when I'm negotiating a deal. And, you know, I, I, I can't compare it directly to a, a team and talent. But when I'm talking to somebody and they're, when they're penny pension early on, it means they don't respect your, your expertise. And when you have a lot of, I don't know, a lot of different issues where I've told myself time and time again, you know what? I'm better off without this deal. It might not seem like it today when I've got this money in front of me where I could get right now, but boy, six months down the line, I'm going to be so tired of this client. And if it's not a big budget, it's not even like they're making my life terrible for a lot of money. I'm not even making a lot of money with my life terrible. <laughs> so it's good to identify those things. And I think it sounds like you're one of the people in the esports industry who can help young talent identify these when they're a little intimidated. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing is that you have to realize that they're reaching, you know, they want you and that there is a reason that they're giving you this offer. And, you know, like I said, like they're expecting you to come back with stuff. Like I've been doing, you know, an attorney for a decade. I've been doing, you know, deals for, you know, 15 plus years in this stuff. So it's like, yeah. 
I know that most times you don't sign an agreement as is. You know, there might be like a little two-page NDA or, you know, a certain standard, whatever, that doesn't really matter. But if it's like a real deal that's going to, you know, especially employment-related, sponsorship-related, something that yeah. is exclusive and impairs your right to do other things, you have to be important. You have to understand it. And, you know, you can't just jump at it because you think that, oh, this is – you know, the end all be all because it might not be. And that's why you have to understand what it says. And, you know, let's be real. How many people have can read with a 20, 30, 40 page agreement and understand it? Like, yeah, especially a legal document that appears to be in a different language at times. Last thing I'd say here on this topic is simply what I've learned too. One of my favorite quotes in negotiation is the person who's willing to walk away wins the negotiation. Now, some that, sometimes that means you don't get a deal, but you didn't get a bad deal. And sometimes winning is you're, you have this talent, somebody offered you a contract, you didn't take it because it wasn't a great opportunity for you. Guess what? That doesn't mean that you're not going to have another better opportunity with somebody else. And the best thing you can do is turn that down if they're not reasonable. Yeah, like I had that exact today, you know, yesterday and today with a client where we were talking with someone and we were on the phone with them and they were just had an outrageous request. And like I talked to my client today and I'm just like, you can't do this. Like this makes no sense for you. Like I get yeah. it. They, you know, they're trying to, you know, push you into it and make you feel how great and how it would be a huge mistake for you to miss out on it. Yep. That's just because they want you to do it. And, you know, they want you to do it how they want it done. And, you know, ultimately you're going to spend your time and effort on this and it's not something you're going to be happy with when you can spend your time and effort on something else. And I think that, you know, as you go up the ladder, there's only so many hours in a day. So if you're spending one hour on something, one thing you're not spending on something else. That's a great point. So you've obviously, we've we've gone over your experience, which is very beneficial in the sports space, but not everybody goes through their career and one day says, I should write a book on this. How did that uh, pop up for you? Well, yeah, I've always kind of been involved in the academic space. I used to teach a music business class and now I'm teaching esports classes and writing different articles for different publications so I, I always enjoyed that part and i kind of got to a point where i was like okay maybe i'm gonna start writing a bunch more articles and then i was like why don't i just write a book like why would i you know siphon out all this information piece by piece when i can maybe just you know bring it all together in a more cohesive thing and you know i felt like there was definitely a void in the information that was out there it was Sure. You know, something especially coming from you know the legal and business side of the industry that you know the book is kind of focused on i felt like there wasn't really much out there and what was out there just wasn't as in depth or you know teachable as it needed to be so yeah. it kind of was like i literally sat down and opened up a microsoft word and just started typing and it was just like you know, as I'm typing one thing, something else comes. And as you're researching, like, it's like a puzzle that you're kind of piecing together where it's like I had like a general outline of what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. As you're starting to write it, new things come up and, right. you know, oh, well, I didn't think about that. And maybe this is the way to break it down. And, you know, it kind of just starts becoming and evolving over time. And, you know, and then it's like, you know, I had this manuscript and I submitted it to some publishers and then you got feedback from publishers. And then based on that, you make more tweaks. So it was really interesting. So what was that timeline from first? How long was it from you opened Microsoft Word till you sent it to a publisher? And then what was the timeline from when you first sent it to a publisher to it was getting printed? 
So yeah, I would say it probably took about a year to kind of write the whole thing. Just you know, I wasn't you know doing it every single day. It was just kind of something. Oh, I have two hours to kill. Let me you know work here, and it was just kind of something that I was doing over time. And then kind of COVID happened, and it gave me a little bit of time to really kind of focus on pitching it. And there at that go. point, it was like you know one of the publishers was interested, and I kind of submitted the manuscript, and they gave me feedback and. Then from there was about a six-month editing process with the publisher, where you know I would send the manuscript and they would edit it, and then I would approve their edits and add more, and then it would go to like what the vanity would look like, and you know it would just kind of be a process where they would send me with the cover and the back cover and all these different parts of it until it was done and released. Cool. And did you have any experience with book writing before this or did you literally say i think i'm going to write a book on my computer and you did that and then you started reaching out to cold calls cold emails to publishers yeah literally i just decided that i was going to write a book and you know i've obviously you know from my practice worked with authors and different people where we've you know shopped work so i understood the mechanism so i knew how to find the right contacts and yeah. I literally just the kind of pitch email that I would for a talent where it's like, I'm Justin, this is who I am, this is what I'm working on. Here's, you know, chapter one or here's like a synopsis of it. If you're interested, let me send you more. And cool. you know, I got some people that pass. Two of the big ones actually won the manuscript and you know, then one of them passed and then the other one offered me a deal. So it was you know, Incredible. kind of just yeah, it was just kind of one of those things where like I reached out to every major publisher and one wanted it and now we're you know it's out in stores and kind of a bunch of different universities are using it and different countries so it's it's exciting to see it that is exciting and one and you when you got that contract you looked in the mirror and you said i see somebody who can help me with this <laughs> right it's like do it for yourself right it's it, again it's a little bit tough when you're doing your contract for yourself yeah. but yeah no it's like okay like this is good this is fair like i want more money but what am i you know i'm not john grisham so i really can't ask for more but let's True. do it that's great so what going through that process from somebody who had never done it before and i've gone all the way through it what are some tips that you can give our audience who are thinking about wanting to write a book of their own i would say that the you know the biggest thing is you have to be willing to put in the work because it's one of those things where like oh well maybe i well i need to explain it you know where it's like well maybe i don't need to go in and you know like i think that that was the biggest thing was pushing myself to go that next level where you Mm -hmm. can have a very facial kind of explanation of things but i think where the value in is kind of expanding and really elaborating it and i think that was something that i found i kind of felt on the second you know edit but the first edit seemed a lot like I was just kind of making the roadmap and really kind of planning out what it was going to be. And then once yeah. I really kind of focused on each section, like, okay, well, I can add this and this comes here. And, you know, what about this? You know, and it just kind of was kind of no, you just have to be aware that it's going to evolve and you have to accept it and go with it. Where it's like, oh, like Good now point. I have to write another paragraph on something because I mentioned it. And if I, if I mentioned it, but I didn't explain what it is. I need to give you more background on it. So it's just kind of yeah. one of those things we're just accepting that it's going to change, you know, and that I mean, even the whole entire structure of the book, I had structured it one way. And then as uh-huh. I was writing it, it just seemed to make more sense to structure a different way. And then maybe I was like, oh, I don't know. It was like kind of like going back and forth with it. So it was just kind of like, 
I just kind of did it by legal discipline. It was like, to me, that was the easiest way where it's like, there's an IP chapter, there's, you know, contract law chapter, there's an employment law chapter, there's immigration. And, and it was just, you know, cause I could have done it where it's like, okay, this is stuff that relates to gamers. This is relates to teams, this is really, you know, and kind of break it into the four major players of the ecosystem, I call it, and just kind of talk about every legal matter that applies to them. And so it was just kind of like deciding, am I going to just have like these four mega chapters or am I going to kind of be like, okay, copyright law, as it applies to gamers, as it applies right. to teams, developers, publisher, you know, and that was kind of the way I went with it. So, yeah, that's a great point. I, I think I'm in a situation, a lot of times I write something and then I'm presenting it, right? So I'm adding context verbally. And I guess you have to think about it. Somebody has to sit down and read this thing and it has to make sense without any additional input from other sources, right? They, that's a good right. point. They don't have my the level of detail you have to get into. Right. It's like they don't know what I'm thinking. So it's just like you have to make sure that it's all out there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then you talk about accepting change. Was that change accepted from you or also the publishers, one or other or both? Well, I think it was just me because it was like, you know, I kind of thought, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. And then having to redo it is a lot of work with moving the footnote. You know, like it was just a lot of rearranging and moving. And it was just like, Hmm. oh, but I already did it this way. You know, am I going to be lazy and just kind of keep going this way? Or am I going to spend the extra time and go back and really, you know, move everything this way and change the headings and, you know, start kind of making the introductions and conclusions more along this line? So it was just like... It ended up, I think, it was the move doing it because I think it flows better right the way it is now. Yeah. Well, and I could see, too, that I could see a publisher coming in and say, hey, I see what you did here, and I know what your vision is, but my understanding of the market and what I think is going to sell, we should do this. And it's a lot different, right? And that's actually something that is extremely common with patents. I remember when I was in college, I was taking a class, and they said that 90%, this is at the time, I don't know if it's still true, but it's still a large percentage, 90% of patents failed because the person who would buy it or build it from the the entrepreneur wanted to shift it, wanted to change it. And these entrepreneurs, it's like, no, that's not what it's for. It's for this thing. It's to do this thing this way, this way, blah, blah, blah. And they won't budge. And so because of that, they do not have an invention that makes money. And I think that's probably true with books, if I would guess. Yeah, you got to adapt to the market. Like, you know, if it was very legalese, I think it would be very limiting in where it could go. And that was, you know, the tone was much more for, you know, anyone. Like, you know, whether you're an accountant, whether you're a gamer, whether you're a team owner, like, you know, an 18-year-old kid who wants to start a team or run an esports event, you pick up this book, you're going to understand the kind of licenses you need the kind of things that you, you know, the technology that you have to write the rules, like, you know, you have to get a license from the developer. It'll kind of start laying out all of the things so that you can actually operate properly. And I think that was the idea behind it because if it was just really legalese, it would only really be for lawyers and law students, which would have been very limiting in what I was, you know, going for. Yeah, it's a good point that you need to know your audience and who you're going after. If if you did want to target <laughs> lawyers and legal students, you obviously would want to write it very differently. But it sounds like your book, you want it broad, you want it to be easy to read. And for people of 
all backgrounds to be able to understand. So exactly understand that audience is, is a key piece there too. Another question as far as this book writing stuff, um, who is the type, what is the type of role that people should be reaching out to if they want to be, get their book published? Who is that person when you're looking at the titles on LinkedIn or you're looking for somebody, is it the editor? Is it somebody else? What is, what is the type of person that takes his requests? Well, yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, I did a lot of research and there's pretty much four major publishers probably in the world that kind of own a lot of everything. So if you go to their websites, they have, you know, a submission page or an editor page and different individuals are responsible for different genres. You know, there's a um, a fiction writer, there's sci-fi, there's, you know, more legal stuff. So it's kind of like I literally a lot of their emails are there or you know, yeah. if you're savvy, you could find one email and figure out if it's, you know, J. Jacobson at Universal or Justin.j yeah. or whatever it may be. And it was just kind of finding the person who handled that kind of book. So it was like reaching out to the person that did sports and, you know, entertainment and media and tech and gaming and kind of these things that were kind of related to it. Cause there was no esports department or, you know, kind of gaming division. But I was able to kind of go in their kind of gaming and you know wing where they have books on coding and video game development and those kind of things. So to talk about esports business wasn't totally out of left field because they're already familiar with video games and some of the you know legal matters related to it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. That's some great insight. Um, question for you: We're we come we're in a very opinionated space. Right. And so I'm curious of some of the feedback once the book was released. I mean, it takes a lot of courage, you know, to really to put this in print, to say, I'm putting myself out there. This is what I believe, etc. So I really commend you for that. And I'm curious, I, I'm thinking it's probably some positive, probably some negative. But what was some of that once that thing was out there in the world and what you were hearing, whether online or directly? Well, yeah, I mean, most of the people that have, you know, talked to me have, you know, really been positive. And I think the biggest things and I would say probably even before it was out there was kind of esports and gaming is shifting so much. How are you able to write something that actually will have value? Yeah. And, you know, that was something that I was thinking about the whole time because I was always envisioning this being a teachable kind of, you know, material. So the way I kind of looked at it was at this point after, you know, decade two decades three you know however long people want to say this has been going on for it's at least a decade plus you know when league of legend and dota 2 started to really take over everything has kind of followed suit in the last few years yeah so whether it's a decade before that or even earlier than that back in the 70s and 80s and 90s we're talking about you know several years and the kind of way I looked at it is there are really established things the same way there are in the music or the sports world or the fashion or any of these other talent-driven worlds. While things are going to change and more things may come, these ne- things aren't necessarily not going to be part of the equation or just magically disappear. So I was right. kind of focused on the things that I felt like would be here five years from now or ten years, like that it's just kind of ingrained in the infrastructure. You sure. know, things like sponsorship money or salary for assigned to a team or subscription or ad revenue. Like these are already really built into this ecosystem, whether you're on Twitch or Mixer or Facebook or Caffeine or 
whatever the new thing that comes out in 10 years from now, the idea of an in, you know, a platform digital currency from your fans is going to be a part of a business model in some fashion. So being able to kind of identify these things, the idea of merchandise, whether it's physical merchandise like a hat or a T-shirt or digital merchandise like a skin or the NFTs and the digital collectible revolution, it's all interchangeable. It's still merchandise. It still has a logo or a gamer tag on it. It's yeah. You're still making a percentage of it. It's still income for you. Like I don't think all of a sudden people are going to stop making merch, you know, because it's like every other industry has merch. Good point. So it's just kind of like that's where the textbook comes. It kind of gives a baseline, and it's not really meant for people that are really doing this at a high level. It's not really meant for my colleagues, the people that are right. doing these major deals all the time. It's for the next kid. It's for me starting out you know, five, six years ago trying to understand what this is all about, what my crash course is going to be, where – you know, there's in the music business, there's called all you need to know about the music business. And it's written by Donald Passman, who is, you know, Janet Jackson, a Michael Jackson's lawyer, Taylor Swift, like mega Hollywood entertainment lawyer. And yeah. literally, this is what my inspiration was, was that you read that book and you really understand what you need to know. And it's written mm-hmm. for a rapper, a producer, a, a label a manager and like anyone that really is just trying to understand what music publishing deals look like and digital music licensing and record deals and just essentially everything that you need to know as a baseline. Obviously there are new things that emerge over time, but the idea of a record label and it being based on number of sales, whether it's sales of downloads or CDs or vinyls or tapes or streams, all that's changing is the medium. The idea that you are getting a percentage of the income from your music that's established you know that's the 1940s music business so that was kind of the way that i thought about it and you know where academia comes is the live lecture that you're talking about is being able to add extra information being able to kind of segment what's going on and as a teacher that's our job our job is to take what's going on and connecting it to today making sure that the new development is part of what's going on here and I think that's what's really exciting about it, that like while we have a baseline knowledge, there's always going to be more and there's always going to be new things. But that doesn't necessarily mean everything that was before is going to leave. That's a good point. I'm curious if you were to pick one thing, one thing alone, what was the hardest part of writing the book? Hmm. I think that... Kind of, you know, I have a, a section where I kind of look at a major player contract and a caster and a coach and a sponsorship agreement and kind of taking sample language from actual, you know, major agreements and explaining it. And I think the biggest thing was trying to find a balance between giving you enough to understand, but also not, you know, essentially giving away the farm and essentially giving stuff that might not necessarily be mine to give. I think sure. finding a happy balance between, you know, this is intellectual curiosity. This is really custom industry practice where, you know, if 30 or 40 teams and all these different games are using it, how can you tell me that streaming revenue isn't a thing that's in these agreements or a buyout or a, you know, in-game yeah. revenue, player branded revenue, team branded revenue. Like these are things that have been developed in this industry and have been honed and, it's just really not out there. So I think that my biggest thing was trying to make sure that 
I was able to give something that was useful and would really give a reader something that they could be like, okay, well, this I can't use this to make an agreement, but I'm in a lot better place than I ever was before. You know, yeah. I actually understand what this kind of clause means, what name and likeness rights means, why I might negotiate. You know, and that was kind of my nuance and the way I approach things is trying to give you negotiation tips from both sides, things that, you know, if I'm a team, this might be what I want, but if I'm a player, this might be what I asked for and trying to kind of give you the two sides of the coin, because I think in negotiation, you have to understand the other person's point. You know, you mm -hmm. that's the way you really succeed in it and being able to see what they're trying to do and what's important to them, you know, because if you understand what's important to them and you understand what's important to you, something that's important to them might not be that important to you. So you can Good almost point. let them, get that so they win and you focus on what's important to you and that might not be that important to them right. and it's really about understanding the stress points the things that really matter you mm. know in these sponsorship agreements like your non-compete like how much after this agreement ends can you not do this like if you're on g fuel how many months after g you leave g fuel before you can go to monster or red bull these are huge things this yeah. is what matters like that's the first question I asked talent. It's like, oh, you're signing G Fuel? Oh, you want to go, like, what's the contract say? Like, what's your non-compete? Oh, well, I can't do it for three or six months. Well, that's a problem. Because that means you can't get paid by anybody else for that long. So it's just yeah. kind of like, these are the things that should matter to you. That was actually a huge issue with a bunch of Nike shoe designers uh, who went over to Yeezy and over to Adidas that, yeah, I mean, some of them, they just paid them to go fishing for a year, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go enjoy your hobby for a year. We'll we'll see you at the Adidas office, uh, you know, in twelve months. I do have. Uh, you're talking a lot about education here, and I have a question about that. Some of the unique challenges in esports versus other disciplines, and you know, math isn't changing, science doesn't change, right? These things are pretty baked. History is uh, history. History is history. <laughs> exactly. And so, but boy. Esports, as you've said, and as we all know, this is a quickly changing industry. Uh, how do you handle that from an academic standpoint when you are teaching curriculum? I mean, I think the biggest thing in you know any class that I would teach is kind of bringing in current events as well as the lesson. I think that it's really important, especially in this kind of rapidly changing world, to kind of know what's going on, say you know the pulse of the week where it's like, okay, these are the five, you know, big deals of the week, or like, this is the new story, because I think, you know, whether it's entertainment, music, sports, while it doesn't move necessarily as fast as esports and gaming might, you have to know what's going on, because that informs you for how you're supposed to operate. Yep. You know, like, especially coming from this talent world, when I see a new brand getting to the space that wasn't in it, I'm really interested. I want to see, you know, who's, what, people brought it happened what professionals what team who they're working with why this is happening because to me if you're able to bring a new brand in that wasn't in the space you must have done a really good job you know brands that are in the space right. they're pretty easy to sell to because they already get it but a new one it takes a lot more like i would say the first couple of years of doing this all i did was explain what esports was how it do like what twitch <laughs> is why this is valuable and it was just really an educational process and mm -hmm. you know, then the whole ninja and all that stuff happened and everyone's like Fortnite ninja, Fortnite ninja. And it's like, 
I don't represent Ninja, but I do represent Fortnite. You know, it's just kind of like it was a lot more on their radar. And just over the last few years, it's really gotten even more so. So, you know, it's almost one of these things where you have to know what's going on for you to understand the full industry. And I think that whether it's looking at Esports Observer, Esports Insider, or really any of these outlets that are reporting on what's going on, that's yeah. how you're able to stay on top of it. What do you think you you've had a lot of experience you said explaining esports to people, especially from the legal perspective. You wrote a book on it, quite literally. What do you see as something that outsiders get wrong about the esports space? I mean, I, I know the low hanging fruit is, you know, esports versus gaming and how, you know, they're different and yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, esports is under the umbrella of gaming and the way yeah. I kind of say is like your esports and gaming. It's yeah, you're a professional, but the people that I'm looking at, you also have more. You're also more of a personality. So I think explaining to them kind of how it works. I would say the biggest hurdle has been kind of the different social media platforms and kind of where esports lies versus the more traditional entertainment world. And I actually had wrote an article about this a while ago where it's like we have the esports influencer dilemma where naturally esports takes place in Twitter. A lot of larger followings, a lot of the conversation, a lot of the interaction is on Twitter. And historically, yeah. it was because there was no ESPN or USA Today reporting about esports. The only way to see the highlights, know who won, was to engage on Twitter, was to follow the teams there. And that's where, mm, you know, point. if you look at huge talent, we compare their Twitter following to Instagram or something else, it's night and day. But as yeah. coming from the more traditional world and, you know, like I said, talking to a lot of these brands, they're very much focused on Instagram. Twitter right. doesn't get really good engagement. Instagram has the best engagement because these brands are more visually driven. Instagram is visually driven where Twitter isn't. Right. So naturally, you have a super mega star that has, you know, a million, two million on Twitter, but 200,000 on Instagram. So you can't really sell him as a two million follower guy because as far as they're concerned, they don't care about a post on Twitter. It doesn't yeah, get Twitter isn't as, isn't as relevant to the brand. They're like, hey, we... We, we see people engage with us on Instagram. What is that following versus exactly. Twitter so, is more is less relevant. Yeah, and like I even you know in the article I wrote, we were talking about Burgesson, like super super heavyweight star. You know, had millions of Twitter followers, and maybe you know back then he was maybe two hundred fifty thousand Instagram. I'm sure now he's a lot higher, but considering he's probably one of the most notable and famous people that he has way less than some random models on the Instagram models, it's shocking. But at the end of the day, sure. these brands, their KPIs, their budgets is all based on Instagram. So I had a lot yeah. of education of explaining like, well, Twitter is where esports is and that's where all their fans are and that's where the, the community, the people that you want, like you're targeting their fans and they're, on in they're not on Instagram, they're on Twitter. And exactly. I think that was probably the biggest education was trying to explain, especially these more fashion brands, these lifestyle ones, that, yeah, Instagram really isn't where they lie. You can have it, but their followings are much smaller predominantly. And it's funny because, like, I was doing a lot of stuff in the NBA 2K League early on, 
And I was really, because like none of these kids had Instagram. And literally mm. when I started working with them, I was like, you have to make Instagram. And then you just saw a wave of every kid making one. And it was just kind of like one after the other, they made one because they started yeah. to understand that that was where the value was going to be. It's a good point. I think there's education to the brands, the non-endemics, and there's education to our industry and our talent. And both need to meet in the middle sometimes. Uh, to your point, these brands need to understand, like, yes, your fans are on Instagram, but the people you're trying to engage aren't there. And Marketing 101 is pretty much go to the people you want to reach rather than pulling them to you. But sometimes it's hard, the, you know, these brands, especially these big yeah. companies are, they're like, oh, well, we need Instagram, you know, like this is what the deliverables say. Like we need 150,000 Instagram followers and, you know, like that's great that they have 2 million on Twitter, but you know, only having 10,000 yeah. on Instagram isn't going to cut it. Well, and then what's in the engagement rate, right? Uh, a lot of times a micro-influencer approach can be better because your your engagement over following, right? You see that big number at the top, but how many likes and comments are on each post? That's a good point. And then I, I think too, I think you're you're pretty involved in this helping talent understand how to work with companies, teams, brands, right? Is going the other way, saying, Yeah, I understand your world is Twitter, these live updates, you know, live tweeting tournaments and all of these things. But guess what? The people who are gonna pay you they value Instagram. And so understanding, okay, I can't always just expect people to come to me. I need to at least meet them halfway, if not going a little further. Yeah, and it's one of these things where you have to think about how you're going to build that. If you have a really big Twitter following, how are you going to build up you know, your Instagram? What are you going to do to get traction there? And you know, TikTok is like the new elephant in the room where it's like, it has such great engagement and the algorithm really favors everyone and it's not really a pay-to-play model like most of the other ones yeah. however a lot of brands don't know what to do with it and like i've had conversations where it's like we don't care about tiktok or like you know we only care about their instagram or their youtube or their concurrent views on twitch like it's such a weird and interesting time because every brand has different directives has different you know what they're looking for and it's like finding someone that fits into their parameters because, again, different talent have different places that they've been bigger at. Absolutely. And now I could go on and on with you here. I think, you know, a lot of people should read your book, I think. How can people find the book and any recommend recommendations there? Well, yeah, you know, the book, The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming, it's available everywhere. So you can get it on Amazon or from Barnes & Noble or Walmart. Literally just Google it and you'll find it. It's available pretty much worldwide. You can get it in an ebook or your Kindle. So definitely check it out. Absolutely. Well, I think that's that's fantastic. We'll link to it along with the episode as well. Justin M. Jacobson, you've done a great job educating so many people, both in the classroom, through your book, the content that you do, and, and helping our players, our young people, thrive in this industry. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for joining me here on the DLC Drop podcast as well. Well, you know, thanks for having me. And for everyone out there, make sure to check me out on Twitter, Justin J-E-S-Q. My DMs are open, so I'm always happy to you know answer any questions you have. So feel free to reach out. Absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Definitely make sure to hit up Justin. Check out his book as well. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. 
This podcast is part of the Esports Future Eye Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.